You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Welcome back to Discourse 22 with Sajjad Yub and Sheikh Ibrahim Skaitima. We're discussing humility. You say that there's no one more honored than someone who disavows importance. Would that mean all politicians are doomed to abasement and disgrace? And why don't we always see that? Well, I mean, that's making, a, that's, that's making an assumption of politicians, which may or may not be true. Um, you know, maybe, a, like, I don't suppose anything is possible. I mean, you can have a politician who is genuinely there to make a contribution and not to be seen. Um, that has to be possible. I mean, it's just logically possible. You know, it's, an, uh, it's a multiverse with infinite possibilities. So this peculiar thing of a unself-interested politician might just, might maybe, you know, may just happen. <laughs> you never know. Mm. Uh, but uh, so I'd rather, I'd rather go to the beginning of the question and, and uh, to look at this whole thing of why is it that people love humble, I mean, truly humble people. Mm. Why do people love them? Why, why are they such, such attractive beings? And I think it, it's useful initially to understand what humility is. Humility is not the same thing as groveling. Right. So somebody once told me, I can't remember who it was, but years ago, they said to me, listen, humility, is, humility isn't thinking of yourself less. No, no, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. In other words, it's not to have a demeaned view of yourself. It's basically not to make your status significant to make that less of an object of thought, you know? So this sort of practiced, you humble demeanor, you know, the sort of hunched shoulders and the kind of downcast eye and sort of like, you know, that's, that's not humility. You know, that's, um, so what is humility? Humility is to understand that in any situation that you're in, you, that, that significance is to be granted to the other that the self has no significance. And the, and the way to understand this, as we, we spoke before about your, your being, being like a, a reducing valve to something that sits behind it that emanates through you. And, um, and it has been implied in our discussion that this reducing valve has taken quite a while to construct. I mean, it's not just an ordinary thing, you know? I mean, it's taken all events from the Big Bang to be woven together to produce the scaffolding that the light of your attention can sit on and view the world and emanate to the world, you know? So, so you, your being is a viewing point. It's a place that sees, that looks out on the world. And as we've already indicated before, when it looks out at the world, um, where, you know, and it sees things as they are. In other words, it doesn't hide inside a house. It goes out into a mountain to see things that are. It's amazed. It's gobsmacked. All that you have to do in a starry night, go out and look at the stars. That's amazing. You know, it's just like, so in other words, you are, you are made to be amazed with, with not this side of their seeing, that side of the seeing, not the one who's seeing, but the, what, what is seen. You know, your being has been designed to be fascinated with, to be amazed with, to be enchanted with anything other than yourself. You've not been made to find yourself interesting. 
You've not been made to look at yourself. And the best sort of metaphor to understand this is how your eyes work, because your eyes are metaphor for your attention. You know, your eyes aren't made to look at yourself. It would be the horrible, it's like a zombie movie, your eyes roll back. back. Mm. You've been made to be looking out. Now, when you do that, when you are the one who is amazed with, rather than the one who's trying to be seen, but the one who sees, the one who's fascinated, the one, not the one who's trying to be fascinating, you know, when you do that, you're doing what your first instruction was as a human being, because you were made so that he wanted to be known. So you were made to, to witness his magnificence. And that's what you're doing when you're a maid, you know. So you're basically quintessentially human. You are, you are demonstrating, you are living the essence of being human. That is an immensely beautiful thing. And that is something that people find extraordinarily attractive. You know, somebody who's truly delighted at life, other people find amazingly attractive. Because it's, it's, like, it's like they found a, a fountain of freshness, of emanation that, 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 that is real. It's rooted, you know, it does what it's supposed to do. Uh, and so, so and, and the opposite, when you find somebody who's hooded, who's doing the equivalent of rolling their eyes into the back, and when they're wanting to be seen, is the degree to which they are deeply objectionable. I mean, there's nothing more ugly than somebody who finds themselves interesting. You know, I mean, Sheikh Muhammad Imam Habib said that in, his, in one of his societies um, said, you know, don't be fascinated with what, what's in the self. You'll only find that which is ugly. You know? So, so um, also the true princes of existence are the ones who, are, who, are, who grant significance. And, and I mean, these are the true, this is because this is where true authority sits. You know, one would think that it's the king who's the significant one, you know, the, the majestic one, the one that everybody acclaims. So I look at them and, yeah, he's the king, you know, um, he's the significant one. Um, but, you know, um, who, where does the real authority sit? With the king or with the kingmaker? Surely it's with the kingmaker. So it's not with the one that claims the significance that the real authority sits. It's with the one who grants the significance. So... Your strong suit isn't to be the one who's on center stage competing, trying to be seen. Your strong suit is the one who vacates the stage and does the seeing, not wanting to be seen. Hmm. Why do you say that the station of silence is preeminent over the station of speech? The, I mean, this is just has to be experienced. It's, it's, it is a build on what we've just said, hmm. but it's, it's also experientially true. Have you ever had that sinking feeling? You're trying to convince somebody of something and they're keeping quiet and they're skeptical. <laughs> and the more you try and vindicate, it's like you, you literally feel like you're in quicksand and you're just being sucked deeper and deeper into this nightmare and they're just sitting there deadpan. You know, doesn't that demonstrate that the one who is silent has preeminence over the one who speaks? Because all that you have to do, really all that you have to do, is to either grant it significance or trivialize it. Mm. The only thing that sits with you. What sits with the person who's talking is they've got to convince you that what they're saying 
is significant and not trivial, is true and not false. You know, so, so clearly, who's got to do the work here? I mean, it's the one who's talking to got to do the work. Who's the one who designates that, 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 that this is either true or not true? The guy who does nothing is just looking. He's just, you know, so from every point of view, speech is weaker than silence. Silence has preeminence over speech. The person who, who is speaking is obviously the one who is seeking to be seen. I mean, he's literally taking something that's inside him, the meaning that he's got in his being, and he's putting it out to be observed in the world. He's seeking his insight to be seen, you know? I mean, the, the person who's, who's, who's listening isn't doing anything like that. I mean, they, 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 they're, not, they're not standing out to be seen. They're not trying to appear. You know, they're not having to do any work. They're just aligning with that which is the, between. So you're trying to tell me something. Actually, is that right now? It's the other way around. I'm trying to tell you something. There's something in my head that I'm trying to somehow, and God, this is a nightmare. I'm not only am I trying to push it out of my head into the interspace between me and you, I'm actually trying to force it into a little electronic box that's going to transmute it through a lot of blips all around the planet to the other side of the world, come out of your screen, and then and all that you have to do is either nod or look bored. That's all you have. So who's the vulnerable one here? <laughs> do you understand? But clearly, I mean, the, the one who listens is the has the authority. The one who speaks, you know, I see I a lot of leadership work, and what I find most often with people who are in charge of others, they talk too much. I'm going to go to them and say, shut up, for heaven's sake. You know, um, you, you, you know, you, 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 you're not demonstrating how powerful you are by blabbing on the whole time. You're actually demonstrating exactly the opposite. Don't be the one who always takes center stage. Do the one, do some listening. Don't be the one who's always got an opinion to promulgate. That's your real power rests in being the one who listens, not the one who speaks. You know, being the one who steps back, not the one who engages, who steps in. Being the one who enables, who allows, not the one who, uh, who commands. Yeah. We have a tendency to talk all the time to ourselves, to have opinions, to feel this gets in the way of us having real insights. Mm. I think that is absolutely true. Mm. Our... our, our I mean, think about this. How often, if something's a real insight, that means you didn't think of it before. Because otherwise, you wouldn't have, it wouldn't have struck as, hell, that's interesting. It wouldn't have been an insight if you already knew it, if you'd mm. seen it before. So an insight has this element of freshness to it, which basically means to say an insight, by definition, will challenge your prejudices. So if it confirms your prejudice, then, uh, then it's not an insight. An insight is, uh, you know, um, I've not seen that before. So our, what goes on in our heads, our constant repeating of our, our, uh, our prejudices and our preconceptions and our, our views of the world 
is really a dumbing down mechanism. I mean, it, it, it reduces uh, the, what there is to see. Mm. It's a little bit like wearing really thick sunglasses that have got layers of accretion, like mud, sort of white layers and layers of mud. Yeah. And, um, and so, so um, and what my parents have done, not only have they put these glasses on me and they've put mud on it, but they've also made a couple of tiny scratches, which is, you know, th this is what you're allowed to see. And I look out at the world and that's what I see. And it's not a lot of, it's quite grainy and it's, it's not very, it's certainly not very exciting. It's not very interesting, but you know, this is the, this is the world as it is, you know. Um, uh, and then one day, maybe a catastrophe hits me, which is like the equivalent of somebody being outside in a rainstorm. But I mean, bear in mind, this mud is like really thick. It's like quite caked, you know. Hmm. And so I get completely drenched with rain and, and some of this, this mud now washes off and it's all over me and I'm not that pretty anymore after it's like, but what's amazing is that I really, well, you know, these little scratches that I saw through before, I can see a lot more than that now, you know, and, and, uh, um, uh, and, and in fact, what I, what I can see, most of what I'm seeing now is not inside the scratch. It's outside of the scratch. It's still very blurry because I mean, there's still quite a lot of muck on the spectacles, you know, but but then um, I get another sort of deluge experience, um, you know, another little catastrophe that sort of challenges my assumptions about how things are. And a little bit more gets washed off. Our, our aim on this path is to create the conditions where eventually you've got, you've got a clean set of lenses. And what you will then see will be so amazing, you won't, it'll be good enough for you. So, so we have an expression for this. We, we say that uh, if seeing things as they are isn't good enough for you, you're not seeing things as they are. You say that all the practices of being are practices in humility. Please elaborate and why is this desirable anyway? So you've been made to be amazed at him to see he's amazing and he's extraordinary. A precondition, what makes that possible is an, a, a viewing point from apparent smallness. So your inadequacy is part of, is part of the, uh, the, uh, the, um, the formula, you know. Uh, you, um, the, 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 Anything that does the opposite of that, anything that makes you think that you're significant, then calls you away from your first life calling. I mean, we've got like an, an, an abstract life calling, which every human being has, and that is to be worshipful, that is to see that he's the Rab. And then we have a particular life calling, which is how that thing translates into our own life and the contributions we should be making to life. You know, so this first thing of being the worshipful one is rooted in the assumption of not, not of adequacy, not of, um, of, of self-sufficiency, not of, of significance, but exactly the opposite. Um, it is my insignificance that makes it possible for me to grant to see his significance. It is my inadequacy that recognizes his capability. 
It is my poverty that recognizes his wealth. It is by my, my smallness that I recognize his greatness. Now, that's why you, you know, genuine humility is really something that one should, it's, it's the first condition for being properly human. Mm. If you aren't trying to pursue it, you, you, will, um, you, you can't be properly human. You can't do the role, the job that you've been ascribed to as by your creator. So that's why you should want to be, you should pursue this station of humility, you know. Um, uh, and also, you, you just know that um, people who, who are arrogant and self-important are just objectionable. But they're just ugly. You make so, the great... Uh, sorry, can I tell you a story about it? Yeah, please. One of the shoe that I, I, I met once said to me, he had um, he met a man who had a very big turban and the man was describing him, he was introducing himself and he said, I am the Grand Mufti of Odessa. And the Sheikh who remained unnamed because I might get myself into trouble said, uh, a lot of good that's done you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, any person who does the equivalent of that, I am the, I am the, you know, I'm the professor of so-and-so, I'm the such-and-such, -such, you know. I mean, they, 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 they might have achieved that status in the world, but what they've actually done by achieving that status and congratulating themselves that they have the status is they've done, they've actually diminished themselves irrevocably in the things that really matter. It's done them no good. I'm done. You made a great analogy with the sun and the clouds and the heart and the inner noise. Please tell us more about So right now, there, there's enough going on around you, immediately around you, which is so extraordinary. It should put you in, a, in, in an almost catatonic stupor of ecstasy. If you knew what was going on in that plant just behind you to your right, if you could actually do, we're given the eyes to see what was really going on right now, you know, the sort of the, the osmosis and the, the photosynthesis, all this stuff happened. It's like this, this swirling kind of, you know, I mean, you'd, you'd either be in terror of the thing, just that it leaps out and eats you, or uh, you, you'd certainly be amazed. You'd certainly find it truly significant. So, so um, the, you know, that, that's, uh, that's how things are. So why aren't you catatonically ecstatic? Why? If you, if, 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 you know, if you, if what's in front of your nose is so extraordinary, it should make you stupefied with wonder. Why aren't you in a state of wonder? Well, maybe you're not seeing the thing that's in front of your nose. And I think that is true for all of us. We're not seeing the thing that is in front of our nose. What gets in the way is that our attention gets absorbed by stuff that's not in front of our eyes, by stuff that's behind our eyes. So there's a filter that sits between you and the thing that you see that is, 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 um, is your, your self-talk, your internal dialogue, you know, the kind of the prejudices, the, the accretion of mud that's been put into you from when you were very little that we spoke about before, like on the glasses, you know, the kind of, and, and uh, so you don't see the thing as it is, and then you, that you're miserable. So you, and you, you live in a, in a world of darkness, um, uh, your inner space you experience is depressing. 
and as you know very little joy very little light it's not because it isn't there you're not seeing it you're not allowing it in you know it's the stuff that goes on in your head is like clouds in front of the sun mm. you know that amazing radiance that that um, extraordinary effulgence is always there but you don't see it you don't see it because you're there's stuff between you the stuff that you're creating clouds internal noise internal clouds that operate like a filter that stand between you and the world that you see this thing of you becoming catatonically ecstatic is not a metaphor because uh, you, we know this. All Indian traditions have this equivalent of the majdub, of the person who, who gets completely drunk in Allah and, and doesn't come out of it, you know. Um, and we all have that potential. Mm. And we might say, oh, this poor person, look at him drooling on the street corner, he's completely useless. Well, maybe he's not completely useless. Maybe he's actually the one that the whole universe has been made for. Because if you aren't sitting, in a sense, drooling on the street corner in amazement at what you're seeing, you're not seeing it. You're a somnambulant. Mm. And how does one take away the mud from the eyes, remove the clouds, and get into that state of... So this is a... The, this has been the subject of all mystical traditions, not just Tasawwuf. Mm. You know, um, there are certain themes that get shared in all inner traditions. They, and and, and um, mostly it is about withdrawal from your, your, your day-to-day your, your day -day engagement of the world. Now that withdrawal doesn't have to be you know, permanent into the mountains. Because clearly, I mean, if you aren't meeting people, there's not much to talk about. I mean, that's easy, you know. Mm. But then maybe you can't do the other side of the job, which is, you know, so we've got to do two things. We've got to, amanu, in other words, we've got to, we've got to be amazed, we've got to see, you know, we've got, I mean, it means belief, but it's to see the reality, you know. And amanu, sorry, heart. So we, we, we've also got to emanate. Mm. That's very difficult to emanate if you're sitting in a, in a hole in a mountain in top of the Himalaya, you know, that's, then you don't emanate. I mean, that's maybe to the cave, but uh, <laughs> uh, so, so, so you've got to do both. So our approach to this is called Tahajjud. Mm. It's called, so there are, you can actually withdraw from your, your engagement with, uh, with, uh, with people uh, uh, and still live a life among people. You know, you do you, you're fasting, you mm. withdraw. Salah. I mean, you you know, it's very difficult to have a conversation with somebody who is in sajda. I mean, that would be a very strange conversation to have. You know, it's kind of like um, uh, so. It's, um, it's uh, uh, tahajjud is the same thing. You 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 go you go into an inner space. You withdraw into yourself. Find out what's good, what, what actually, what how this thing behind your eyes works. You know? So, in fact, all of the practices of the dean really have that effect. They have uh, an effect of, of create, cultivating an inward gatheredness. Um, and as, as people of Tasawuf, that is what we use. That's our technology. Uh, I don't think it's the only technology. You can use some, there are all sorts of technology, ways of doing this. Um, uh, I think we would say, well, the, we're very happy with the one that we use, not wanting to compete with anybody, but 
we're happy with the one that we use because it allows us still to have a reasonably normal life. You know, you can still have the children and have the wife and um, I know it's challenging, but you can do it. You know, whereas the, the, these other ways of doing this are quite extreme, I mean, and very often quite risky because they, they involve a deliberate courting of near-death experience. Mm. On that note, thank you for joining us again and we look forward to Discourse 23. as alaikum. Listeners, you are listening to Millennium Discourses. We will be back tomorrow with another topic. We would like to thank Etzko Skatema. Till tomorrow, Allah Hafiz from us all. Astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah.